let's just give God praise. Yes. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. God, you are so good, and every name that is named must bow to the name of Jesus. So whatever is trying to present itself big in your life right now, if it is sickness, if it's lack, if it's fear, if it's worry, whatever it is, maybe maybe it's a situation with a person, maybe it's something going on at work, I want you to get that settled in yourself, like think of what it is, and I want to ask you, you don't have to do it loud, but I want to ask you just to say the name of Jesus out loud with you, with that present in your thought, whatever that might be. And you may even want to say the person's name or the situation's name or the, you know, so you may just do it like this. Okay. Marriage issues. I speak to you, Jesus. So whatever that is for you right now, I want you to get it settled, like get it in your, in front of you. And I want you just put your hands on your heart because we're going to settle in right here. And I want you just to speak out loud, Jesus. Now take a deep breath. Say his name again, Jesus. Whatever the situation is, whatever the circumstance is, take another deep breath. Jesus. And now, Father, those situations and those circumstances that we have no control over, the things that are moving and swirling around us that we have no like direct contact with, but they are directly affecting us. Let's take another deep breath. Jesus. Jesus. There's something about breathing. <laughs> it's, it's, I hear it's good for you. <laughs> and the saying the name of Jesus is so good. So, you know, you may not know a whole lot of the scripture. Maybe you're learning. Maybe you're brand new to this. Maybe you've been in it for a long time and didn't know it was important to know scripture. But the one thing that you know that every one of us can speak, Jesus. So when you're in a situation and you don't know what to do, you say, Jesus. Because <laughs> it's always appropriate and it's always good. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> I don't want you to sit just yet. This is the first Sunday of the month. And here at N3C, we like to pray over your finances and pray over the tithes and offerings uh, the first Sunday of the month. So I want you to stay standing. I'm going to ask you to do that as we do this. And I wanted to give you a scripture this morning because things happening again, things that some of us have no control over, um, jobs and income, uh, those are important. And so I'm going to ask, <clears throat> Brad, can you go ahead and put that scripture up? And I want you to, we're going to read this together. So let's do this together. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. <clears throat> hey, can we do that last one again, Brad? <clears throat> Sorry, you guys. <clears throat> so I want you to do this. Where it says you, I want you to speak your name out loud. Okay? 
So everybody's going to say something different, but we do have a lot of bobs or whatever. Okay. So let's do it. And God is able to make all grace abound toward Lynette, that Lynette always has all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Yes. So here's what I was, what come to my mind is I love that part where he says, God loves a cheerful giver. And what I was feeling for us, what I was sensing God wanted you to know today is that when we give our tithes and offerings to God, tithes, for those that are learning, tithes are 10% of your increase. So your income, your paycheck, your, um, your oil dividends, whatever it is that comes into you, 10% of your income, 10% of that goes to God. When you give your tithe to God, what that does is it connects your finances to the kingdom of heaven. So when you connect your finances to the kingdom of heaven, your finances are no longer dictated by the the world and the economy and what's going on here, who's, who's hiring, who's firing, what job is doing this and what job is doing that. It doesn't matter because the kingdom economy is always increasing. And the promise is that you would always have more than enough and you have an abundance to give into every good work. That means anybody that God puts in front of you, if you are, uh, if you're traveling and you're at a ministry, you're at a church service somewhere else, God gives you abundance to be able to give into whatever it is that God puts in front of you. And when he says, God loves a cheerful giver, here was what I was feeling God wanted to speak to you this morning. When you connect your finances to the kingdom of heaven and you give your tithes and offerings, it is a joyful thing because you know my finances are guarded and protected by God. They are not subject to everything that is going on. They are not being stolen. My refrigerator doesn't break down just because I get an extra couple hundred dollars. Does that ever, has that, you guys ever felt that? Like, okay, get a couple of hundred dollars and then something breaks. Not when you're connected to the kingdom of God. God always brings more than enough that you always having all sufficiency, have an abundance to give into every good work. So right now in the name of Jesus, father, we thank you for your provision for us. We thank you, God, that you make us rich so that we can give. Father, I thank you that you put people in front of us that we are able to give to and to show your abundance to, to show your blessing to. That, Father, you make us rich not to hoard up for ourselves, but, Father, that we could demonstrate your goodness and your provision to everyone around you. Father, I pray over the tithers. I pray, Father, that that 10% would go to increase the gospel all the way around the world. Father, we thank you for the reach that you are having through this church and for the those that are tithing to ministries. Father, we thank you for the reach that those ministries have around the world. And we declare that the gospel will be preached to every living creature. And we thank you that as tithers, we get to partner with what you're doing around this globe in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Do you have anything? All right. You guys turn around and tell somebody you are blessed. You are blessed. You are blessed. Thank you. Thank you, James. (laughs) 
welcome. Welcome to our online community. For those of you that are watching, all of those of you that are watching from Texas at the NFR, we want you to give, give us a big thumbs up right now. Those of you that are watching on Facebook Live and uh, those tuning in on YouTube and gosh, I got to watch by BoxCast last week. We have super cool ways that you can watch our services online. So for all of you that are watching online, thank you so much for joining us this Sunday morning. Uh, if you're in your PJs, give us another thumbs up and a laughy face, laughing at all of us who got up and got dressed <laughs> this morning. <laughs> Right? My name is Lynette, and if I've never had the opportunity to shake your hand before, I get to be part of the team here at Cowboy Church that uh, is part of the, I am married to the pastor. I'm the only one that gets to say that. Woohoo! So, <laughs> woo-hoo. <laughs> so I want to say thank you so much to Candace Lostro last week. Do you just love her? She is amazing. She is just you look at her and you think, she's so sweet and she's so cute and petite. Uh, she, I would not want to be on the wrong side of Candace Lostro. <laughs> I love her. She is one of my daughters. And Candace, you just make me so proud. I'm just so proud of you. And to get to watch what you and Cody are running and doing with God, it just, it makes everything, it makes the miles worth it. For us, yes. So thank you for who you are. We love you very, very much. Yeah. Uh, and then, gosh, Kylie, I'm not going to look at her so I don't embarrass her. But <clears throat> for those of you that don't know, the young lady that was just like stunningly beautiful up here on that end of the stage, and I'm not looking at her, but we're so proud of her. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Um, For the past several weeks, and I don't know how long it's going to continue. We're just going to continue until um, God takes us in another direction. But for the past several weeks, we've been talking about personal revival. And we've been in that stream. And gosh, every week, we just keep getting more and more that adds to that. And so I wanted to just kind of touch base very quickly. The very first week that we talked about it, some of the... Uh, Part of the definition or part of the foundation that we laid was that personal revival was an opportunity to look past what our eyes can see and to think beyond what our mind can understand. We also discussed that personal revival is not an event. I don't know about a lot of you, but I grew up and revival was a week-long event at the church and you had to go to church every night of revival. And basically all that meant was that you didn't get to watch Dukes of Hazard on TV. That's what revival meant to me. And so we've discussed that revival, the way that God intended it is not meant to be an event that you write on your calendar. It's not something that has a time frame that it starts and it ends, but personal revival is meant to be an ongoing process that we have throughout our lifetime. And I loved what Darren said a few weeks ago, that personal revival, that we have continual encounters throughout our life, that we never stop having revival because that revival is that place that God comes and encounters us, that we have that connection, that meeting with God in a moment or in a place. And God actually does something that he returns or recalls to life that which was dormant, depressed, or dead. That is where we've been going with revival. And so I want to continue in that stream, but I want to take us to another level today. We're going to add something new into that as we're discussing revival. Um, Last 
well, the, the, two weeks ago, I think it was two weeks ago, I kind of lost track of my dates, but a couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go down to Texas and I got to uh, be a part of a women's event that was happening down at Williamson County Cowboy Church down in Liberty, Texas. And man, I had a great time. It's great to get to go and see what other churches are doing. I love getting to see how God is moving. You know, God is so unique in different bodies and in different places. And so I love getting to experience that. So I got to go to a women's event and minister there. Uh, Heather Johnson was there, for those of you that know Heather, and um, Jamie Ross, uh, Corey and Jamie Ross are the pastors of the Cowboy Church there, and so we just had a great time together as women in fellowship, and then Sunday morning I got to go to church, and then from there I was going to come back home, but I decided to go down to Dayton and see what Rhett James has been up to. Yes, our son, for those of you that don't know, Rhett James is our son. He's 19 years old, and he has, after he graduated, he went down to Dayton, Texas, and there's no reason for you to know where Dayton, Texas is. It's about an hour outside of Houston, uh, northeast of Houston, and uh, he's living on a ranch, the Hilton Cattle Company Ranch. Now, here's what you need to know about the Hilton Cattle Company Ranch. When I sent our son down there, I handed him his health insurance card. And I said, keep this on your person at all times when you're doing anything on the ranch. Because whatever it is on the ranch, it tends to turn into a circus. And they would just as soon laugh at you as help you while you're bleeding. So this is where our son is, and he has done so well down there. He's doing an internship with the worship leader at the church down there, and he has had a great time. So I wanted to go and experience life with Rhett James on the ranch. So life on the ranch consists of Rhett's job. On, he lives on the ranch, and that is uh, he works for a couple that lives there that is raising um, Buckenstock. Well, along with their Buckenstock bulls, they are also raising Mexican fighting bulls. Now you understand why I told him, keep this card on your person at all times. Okay, so the bulls, there's several different pins and they range from the yearlings up to the three-year-olds and the bulls that hopefully next year, their plan is that you'll see some of those bulls at the PBR. They went to the PBR just for the, what do you call it? The bucking, the fraturity. Thank you, Candace. <laughs> They went to that. Next year, they'll be at the PBR with riders on them. So these are high-bred, high-tone bulls. So lots of energy they have. So Rhett tells me, first day there, I get, we are feeding on the buggy or the side-by-side. So he fills up all of the buckets. We put the buckets in the back of the buggy, and then we go to feed all of the different bulls and all the different pastures, and they're split up by age. Well, the first pin is a combination of some of the bucking stock, a couple of them, and the Mexican fighting bulls. He tells me before we go out the first morning, he says, mom, you can't get nervous. You just need to stay calm because if you get scared, the bulls sense it and it hypes their energy up. <clears throat> okay, I'm breathing. I'm breathing. So 
we go into the first pin and they're really sweet. There's four of them and I think they're really cute. And I really want to touch that little skin that hangs down right there. What is that called? The dewlap? Something, the dewlap? All right. I want to pet that because it's so cute, right? And it looks really soft. Rhett tells me, mom, you don't get out of the buggy. You stay in the buggy. So I'm like, but I want to touch them. So anyway, the other pin, we don't even go in that pin the first morning because the Mexican fighting bulls are right up close to the gate where we would go in. Rhett doesn't even go in that pin if he can see the fighting bulls, which as a mom, I'm glad to hear that. A couple days later, we go out. The Mexican fighting bulls are not in there, so we're going to go in that pen to feed. So we go in, and two of the bulls are up, so we're situating the feed bucket things, and he's pouring grain out. Well, as he's feeding, I see the bull named Cazador come up, and he's coming from the pasture into the alleyway coming into the pen. Now, for my Mexican-speaking friend, Spanish-speaking friend, You know, Cazador means the hunter, the one who likes the chase. (laughs) Not cool. So Rhett's dumping the feet out. And if you know Rhett, Rhett moves at this speed all the time. I'm like, Ray, he's coming. He's coming. And he goes, I know, mom. I know, mom. I see it. I see it. So he dumps the feet out. He said, I'm going to dump this out. I'm going to go get the gate. You get the buggy and let's get out. Okay. He's opening up the gate and I'm looking over my shoulder and that bull is coming in. I'm like freaking out. So I put the buggy into drive. Rhett is opening the gate this way. I pull up. I pull up so close that he can't get the gate open. I'm not, not panicking very well. Rhett goes, Mom, I can't get the gate. I can't get the gate open. So I slam it back into reverse and I, like, I'm trying not to fill, spill all of the feed out of the, but I, I don't care right now. I just want out of this pit. So I slam the buggy into reverse. Rhett swings the gate open. He goes, hurry, Mom. Hurry, Mom. He's coming. And now when Rhett's voice is elevating an octave, now I just want to pee my pants. Like, I really don't care about the buggy anymore. I just want out of this pin. So I pull it out of reverse and I'm trying to shove it back up into drive. And for those of you who have driven a buggy, you know all those little metal things. All I am hearing is click, 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 click. And I cannot get the thing up into drive because I keep slamming it. And he goes, Mom, what are you doing? Come on, come on. I'm like, I'm trying. Oh my gosh, Casador is breathing and he's coming. So eventually I get it shoved up into drive and I slam on the gas. I shove myself back and Rhett gets the gate shut and Casador comes up to the gate and I'm like, oh my gosh, I just need coffee. I want to go back to the house. This is too much for me. I like the yearlings. I just want to touch the little soft skin. I don't, I don't like all of this. So I found out I am not good at not panicking. <laughs> it scared the way 
time out of me. And I was like, I don't want to go in that pit anymore. I'll stay out here while your feet in there. I'll fill up the water trough. I'm good with that. So I needed to move from the pin into the alleyway. I was in position for transition, but I tried to transition too quickly because of panic. Can you say panic? Panic does not help your transition. I learned this. So let's talk about your position to transition. If you have your Bibles or your phones, I would really love for you to open up to this with me. Go to first Kings and I am going to start reading out of chapter 19. One of their, one of their bulls is named butterfly kisses down there at the ranch. (laughs) And he's really cute, but there's another one that had like this rope tied around his horns and he'd been playing in the bog. So he was like all muddy and he was scary looking. I just didn't like him because he had mud all over his head. But man, I had a good time down there with Rhett. We had a good time feeding together and came home with stories to tell. (laughs) So I'm sure Rhett would tell you, don't take my mom feeding bulls with you because she's not good at it. (laughs) I'm a good helper. I'm good at, I'm good. I was really good at turning the switch on at the thing where you fill up the feed that, what do you call that? The elevator, the hopper. I'm good at that. I'm good at running the switch at the hopper to fill up buckets. All right. First Kings, where we're going to jump in here. If you are looking, if you think, you know what? I don't really know. I've never really found a place in the Bible that I really connect with. I've not found something that like is my language. I would really, really encourage you to read in first and second Kings. I love first and second Samuel. Like I've said many times, if they were to make a movie and do it based on these books in the Bible, these historical books that we have, it would totally be rated R. There is so much stuff. It's like a soap opera. The things that happen and the people that stab other people in the back and the things that are going on. But what is amazing to me is you get to see a historical account of all of the different kings and the priests that came into position by God and by people. And it's really cool because because it gives you um, the opportunity to learn from what other people have done, what they did right and what they didn't do so right. And as you do that, you get to like see the history of God's, um, God's relationship with people. And it's really, really cool. So where we're going to go is one of my personal favorite. I go back to this all the time. This particular account in the Bible, like I said, I'm going to start reading in first Kings chapter 19 is where we're going to pick up, but let me give you just a little bit of history of what's going on here. There is a man named Elijah and he has been appointed or anointed by God as a prophet. That means that God would use Elijah during that time. God would use his prophets to make declarations and to speak to all of the people. When God had something to say, he would speak to one of his prophets and then the prophets would take it to the people and make that declaration or share that message with the people of God. So Elijah has been appointed as a prophet. Now, during that time, there was a husband and wife named Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab was a king and his wife, Jezebel, when I say Jezebel, you say, boo. Okay, let's try it. Jezebel. 
Good job. Okay. So Jezebel and Ahab, they are not on God's side. Everything they do, they were wicked rulers. They, everything they do is going the opposite direction of God. So Elijah calls the prophets of Jezebel. They're called the, the prophets of Baal. Yeah. Boo. Somebody is with me in there. Thank you. Okay. So Elijah calls all of the prophets of Baal, which there were 450 of them. And he calls all of the people of Israel to come together on what I call the great showdown at Mount Carmel. So they all meet and Elijah gives them the opportunity. He says, you all are worshiping a false God. You've been offering sacrifices to them. You've built altars to them. I'm giving you the opportunity to speak and to declare the one true God as the God of your heart. None of the people gathered there. None of the people of Israel would do it. So all of the prophets of Baal, they say, he says, well, hey, here, I have an idea. How about you build an altar to your God and I'll build an altar to my God and let's see whose God is real. So all of the prophets of Baal, they build an altar to their false God and nothing happens. They start wailing and crying Nothing happens. Elijah even kind of gets a little sarcastic with them. And he says, um, well, maybe your God is sleeping. Hmm. Maybe your God, maybe he had to go to the bathroom. What's wrong? How come your God's not doing anything? Well, during all of this, their God does nothing because he's a false God. So Elijah builds an altar. He pours water on the offering. He does everything that would make it impossible. God comes down in fire and burns up not only the offering, but the altar and everything around it. And everybody is like, dude, that's powerful. So when that happens, Elijah takes the 450 false prophets and he kills all of them. After that happens, Jezebel, yeah, she gets mad because he just killed all of her false prophets and she's hot. So she threatens him and threatens to kill him. So Elijah packs his bags and leaves town. So this is where we're going to pick up. So in... First Kings chapter 19, I'm going to start reading in verse nine, Elijah leaves and he goes to Mount Horeb, which in the scripture is called the mountain of God. So when Elijah runs from Jezebel, he runs to the mountain of God. So first Kings chapter 19 verse nine, it says this, and there he, Elijah went into a cave and spent the night in that place and behold, The word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts for the children of Israel. Excuse me for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. So some of you may be familiar with this story from the Bible, but I would like to offer today just a little bit of a different perspective. 
I would like for us to take a look at what's going on here. In the past, what I have heard is that Elijah has run to the cave and that he's running from Jezebel and God is, yeah, right, boo, okay. And God is mad at Elijah because he's run from Jezebel. So I, man, you guys are good at that. Okay, so I would like for us just to take a different look at this. Let's take a look and see what is really being said here. So God asks Elijah in the cave, he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? What I have learned from my husband is to look deeper into the text. Now, as a pastor, I have a really cool Bible program on my computer that you can look up all of the Greek and the Hebrew and go into the roots of the words, but you can Google these things. You can, there's really cool programs that are free online. There's one called Bible Light. There's another one called Blue Letter Bible that you can get in and you can dig into the Hebrew meaning of words in the Old Testament and Greek meaning of words in the New Testament. So when we look at this passage, here and God asks Elijah, what are you doing here? What he is saying to him, that word here actually means when it's being spoken, that the person that it's being spoken to is in very close proximity to the one asking the question. So when God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? He's asking Elijah, Elijah, what are you doing? Having come so close to me? Why have you come close? And why have you drawn near to me in this place? So when he asks Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah has run from Jezebel, but he has run to close proximity and relation to God. Verse 10, Elijah says, they seek to take my life and I alone am left. Those words, what he's saying there is he says, they seek to take my life and I alone am left. He's saying, I'm the only one of of that word alone means that you are the only one, a small part of a larger whole. He says, I'm the only one left. He was the only, he's left behind. It's the, he is the smaller part of a larger whole, which also means remnant. He's saying, I am a remnant And nobody else is willing to stand with me. I am the only one in this time when the world has gone crazy, when nobody else would stand and profess your name. I am the only one left who was willing to declare you as my God. This is what Elijah is saying to him. Has anyone ever felt that same way? Has anyone ever felt like you were the small one that was left and that you were willing to stand and you look around and you think that people will have your back and you're the only one standing, that everyone else has fled, that no one else is willing to declare the truth, that no one else is willing to make a stand in a time when a stand needs to be made at a crucial time because it is a pinpoint time. And if we don't make a stand at this time, the freedom will be lost. Has anyone else felt that? So God speaks to him in verse 11. Well, let me back up here. So he says, I alone am left. What we see here is that Elijah was in a position to transition. He had run from Jezebel and run to God. He had put himself in position to be close to God for a transition to take place. We'll pick up in verse 11. He says this, then he, God said, 
go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it, the still, small voice, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? So what has happened here? is that Elijah has run to God because he needed a time alone with God. The things that Elijah had on the inside of him, the dreams and the visions, all of the hopes that he had, had been crushed. They were dead. They were depressed. And he was in despair. He then made the choice to run to God in a cave to be alone with God. And God tells him, I want you to stand and I want you to go to the mouth of the cave. There are times when we need to get alone with God to hear his voice. When God says this to Elijah, then we're told in the scripture that there was a series of things that happened, that there was a wind that blew so strong that it was tearing the rocks and rocks were crumbling. Now, mind you, Elijah is sitting in a cave by himself. The rocks begin to crumble and Elijah is in this cave. Then there's an earthquake. So Elijah's in the cave and the mountain is shaking. Then there's this great fire. And Elijah is alone in the cave. And unlike me, in the bullpen with Cazador, Elijah doesn't panic. Elijah sits. And when he hears the still, small voice, then he moves. And he moves to the mouth of the cave. And God says to him, what are you doing here Elijah, before God asked the question, Elijah was in the cave. Now God asked the question again, because God has moved and God has asked him, get up and come out to the cave. And Elijah didn't move at the circumstances. He didn't move at the turmoil. He didn't move at the chaos. He didn't move at everything that was going on around him that would try to steal his focus and distract him to get him to move or to make decisions based on anything else. He waited until he heard the voice of God. Then he moved out to the mouth of the cave, and God said, what are you doing here, Elijah? God is saying, you moved close to me in the cave. Now you heard my voice, and you moved near to me again. What are you doing here, Elijah? He moves to stay close to the voice of God. Events and circumstances Elections, quarantines, shutdowns, these are not the things that we move based upon. We move based upon the voice of God. We move to be close to his presence. When God speaks to him and he tells him to to stand and to go out to to the mountain, that word stand in verse 11, and then again, it says that Elijah stood and he went out. 
that word stand and stood are the same word. And what that means is to present yourself as an offering to your superior. So when it says Elijah stood, he went out to the voice of God, moved before God, and he presented himself as an offering to his superior. He presented himself as a sacrifice to God. And God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? God asks him that. And now Elijah standing at the mouth of the cave in position with God. It goes on in verse 14. And he, Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. So Elijah told God this once in the cave. And now again, he's telling God again. So this is something that is really important to Elijah. God listens to Elijah. And when God asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? It's not because God doesn't know where Elijah is. You guys have heard me say this before. When God asks a question, it's not because God is all, hey, you have a lot more wisdom and understanding than I do. Why don't you tell me what you know? Enlighten me. God asks a question because he's wanting to see the response of the heart. So when God asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah moves close to him. When God asks again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah moves close to him and then comes to offer himself as a sacrifice, as an offering to give his heart to God. God sees when he's asked him that he's seeing, I have found the heart of Elijah will move where I tell him to move, that he will obey my voice, that he will listen to me in spite of everything else that's going on. And Elijah again pours his heart out to God. And he said, all of these people have abandoned you. All of these people have abandoned me. See, now if you back up, back in uh, chapter 17 or 18, we read that there was a hundred prophets that had of God that had been hidden in a cave that were split up into fifties and that they were hidden in these caves. So when Elijah is standing before all of the prophets of Baal, and there's this great showdown that happens. He's all by himself, knowing that there's a hundred prophets that are hiding in a cave. None of them came out to stand with him. None of them came to help him. Nobody had his back. They're all hiding in a cave. And Elijah's like, God, I'm the only one. I'm the only one who is willing to take a stand. I'm the only one who's not willing to compromise. And I'm the only one who's not willing to bow down in fear. And he says, I alone am left and they seek to take my life. That word life is an interesting word in the Hebrew because when you look that word up and you dig into it, that word life means my passion, my zeal, my desire. It goes on deeper and it means my vision and my hope. He says, I alone am left and the world is trying to take 
the covenant promise that I have carried in my heart, even though I was the only one standing, that even though no one else would stand with me, that even though I had to do that all by myself, and even though I was scared, God, I did it, but I'm the only one, and the world is seeking to destroy my vision, my desire, and my hope for the future. Anybody feel that? He tells God, I alone am left and they seek to take my dream for the future. They seek to take my hope for the future. Elijah is pouring his heart out to God. And how many of us can feel Elijah's position right now? That things are changing from day to day. That policies are changing. The world is changing. And it feels that this is this. When is it going to end? When is this going to stop? Because one more, one more, one more, one more. And it seems like you're just getting pushed down and pushed down and pushed down. And they're seeking. The world is seeking to take your vision and your hope your desire, your appetite for the future. Elijah is saying that those that had a covenant with you, that they're not acknowledging you, they're not standing in that covenant. And that's the same place that God is wanting us to say, we are standing in our covenant promise with you. And no matter what else is happening, when the world is trying to take my life, when the world is seeking to steal my desire, to kill my passion, to push down my hope and to destroy my vision, I'm left. I'm willing to take a stand. Elijah says, I've done everything and I'm standing alone. The revival moments that Elijah has shared with God throughout his walk as a prophet appointed by God, all of the opposition, all of the times that he has faced opposition, all the times that he's spoken for God and it wasn't popular. It wasn't what the masses wanted to hear or all of the times that he stood on the truth and the people denied it. They turned their back on him. They didn't want to hear that. Elijah is saying, God, continually you've come to me and continually you've spoken to me and you've always been here with me. And all of the revival moments that you've given to me, when I was feeling despair, when I was seeing dormancy, you continually came to me to revive me. And here I stand in the mouth of a cave. And again, God, you have revived me. But if the world that seeks to take my life, if all of that dies here with me, it goes nowhere if I die here all of the gifts all of the dreams all of the anointing dies with me and Elijah is pleading to God saying I alone am left I have no one to pass my passion too. I have no one to pass my revival moments to. I have no one to tell the story to of how great you were at Mount Carmel. I have no one to pass the mantle to because if I die, this dream dies with me. 
Every single one of you has gifts on the inside of you. Every single one of you has abilities that God has given you. Every single one of you has an individual, unique perspective and a story to tell about what God has done in your life. And if you don't pass those stories, if you don't pass those revival moments, if you don't pass those gifts, when you die, they will die with you. Elijah is telling God, God, when I die, all of this dies with me because no one was willing to stand with me. I have no one. So God hears Elijah and he says to him in verse 15, then the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, as Abai, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Now, for years, I've heard this preached, and for years, I heard, go and anoint Elisha in your place, because you're fired. You were terrible. So God was mad at Elijah and he's like, fine, you're going to go hide in a cave. I'm done with you. You're fired. Go anoint somebody else. Let's take a different look at that. Let's just back it up a little bit. Because when he says, when he says to Elijah, go and anoint, he's first, he says, return. He says, return on your way. That word return in the Hebrew means to bring back restore, recover, repair, and put back in place. That sounds a lot like revival to me. Then he says to him, go and anoint Elisha in your place. That in your place, the the in and your is one word in the Hebrew. And what that actually means is to anoint one that will come under one that will follow in succession and one that will follow you. And it is a marker of exchange in relationship. So God was not saying to Elijah, I'm done with you. What he was saying to Elijah is he said, I'm getting to repair. I'm getting ready to restore and I'm getting ready to answer your heart cry. Because you had no one to stand with you. I have a man named Elisha. Go and anoint him in your place to come under you. To have exchange with you. And to follow you in succession. That you can share all of the revival moments with. That you can cast the vision before that you can share the dream, you can share the anointing, you can share the gifts, you can tell him all of the stories, that when you die, there will be a transition, and Elisha then will carry on. God heard the cry of Elijah's heart. See, here's the deal. Revival moments happen in in our lifetime and our lifetime will be filled with a series of revival moments. We've been talking about personal revival, those 
personal encounter moments with God. And some of you maybe have experienced some of those. Some of you may still be pursuing that, but you need to ask yourself, okay, why? When I have a revival moment, what do I do with that? See, God encounters us and God is a God of progression. So when God encounters us, it's always for a bigger purpose than just that one moment. When God encounters you in a personal revival moment, that personal revival moment is to just be one in a series of moments. And a personal revival takes place in a generation. But when that generation passes that revival to the next generation, there is transformation. When we take those moments, every person here, every age group, when we take those revival moments that we have experienced with God, and and like I say, you may be pursuing those. Now you know what to do with it when it happens. When that revival moment happens, you steward that moment because God is not going to stop in that moment. God is giving you that moment just like he did with Elijah at the mountain of God. He gave him that moment to then take that moment and pass that on to share that with someone else who would then take that and go on to do twice as many miracles as Elijah had done. God's plan, the kingdom way of doing things is that God would give us a moment to steward, a revival moment to steward, that when we pass that moment to the next generation, it leads to transformation. Let's take a look at um, a scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. It says this, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. God is a God of progression. So he says from glory, from one revival generation to glory to the next revival generation. When you and I are pressing into personal revival, when you and I are pressing into that place where maybe we go to the cave and we get alone with God, we get quiet with him. We need to hear his voice. Those moments that we spend with God, those revival moments that refresh us, that they bring a restoration, that they bring a repair to our heart. They bring a restoration of zeal to our cause, to our walk, to why we're here, to what God has called us to do. What is your stake in the ground that you say, I'm not willing to move from this, that this is what God has given me, that those revival moments restore our passion and our vision and our hope for the future. And as those revival moments are stewarded from one generation, from glory to the next generation to glory. There is a transformation and it's not a week long thing. That's not transformation. It's not one meeting in a church one night. That's not transformation. That's just one moment. God is looking for a transformation that the earth would be filled with his glory. How is the earth filled with his glory? Through you and I. We're the carriers that we behold as in a mirror and are being transformed from glory to glory. 
that we transition from this position to the next position to the next position to the next position, that it's a continual process, just like Elijah was asking God, that the process doesn't even end at the end of our time here on this earth, that God's will would be that that would be carried on and multiplied by those that we pass on to. That's the way that God works in transformation. When you feel like you're the only one, that you're the remnant, remember to run to the cave. Run to God's voice. Don't be moved by panic, even though a casador is coming. Don't be moved by the chaos that's going on around you. Be moved by the still small voice of God. Don't let distractions derail your purpose. You are here for a reason. If you're facing opposition, it means that you are perfectly positioned for transition. When you're getting ready to transition into the next glory, from glory to glory, you will face opposition. When that opposition comes, you just remember, I'm perfectly positioned to transition <clears throat> in patience. Don't run the buggy up on the gate too fast. It causes panic. <laughs> so here's what I say to you today is let us continue to be transformed. Let us continue to press in to personal revival Let us continue to position ourselves for transition, even in the face of opposition. And let us be transformed from glory to glory to glory to glory, from one revival generation to the next. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Father, I pray in Jesus' name for a spark, for a passion, for a desire, and a hunger for personal revival on the inside of every one of us. I pray that we would hunger and thirst for those moments with you just to be with you that we would do whatever, that we would lay down whatever, that we would cut off the distractions, that we would limit those things that drain us. And God, that we would set our heart to move from one place to the next with you as we pursue just being with you. And God, I pray that as we are with you, that you build on the inside of us a vision that goes beyond our reach. I pray that you would inspire, that you would impart from the throne of heaven, a hunger and a vision for beyond what our minds could comprehend and past just what our eyes can see that God, that you would show us that your desire for us goes so much further than our simple reach. 
Thank you, God, for what you are doing through each one of those that you have marked and called as your children. And I ask right now, if there's anybody that you have not settled that in your heart, that you have not made the conscious, independent choice of your own will to say, I choose this day to follow Jesus Christ. I choose this day to lay down my path and to pursue the path that God has marked my life for. Those things that are in you, those passions that you have, those desires that you have, that you, those gifts that you have, that God wants to take those and enhance those and layer his gifting, layer his anointing, layer his power on it and use those things that he put on the inside of you when he created you. Now you get to partner with the creator to see what those gifts are really all about. If you've never made that conscious decision before, I offer the opportunity to you right now to meet my friend and my savior, Jesus. And all it is, is it's your choice and your decision, but it has to be yours to simply say, Jesus, I choose to follow you. And what that means is you become a follower of Jesus Christ You become what the Bible calls being born again. You ask Jesus to come into your life. And it says, if you can, the Bible says in Romans, if you confess me before, if not in Romans, the Romans, it says, and I'm getting all confused. I'm getting my scriptures confused. That if you confess him, that he will confess you before the father. So right now, if you've never confessed Jesus as your savior before, I invite you just to do that out loud with your mouth. Say, Jesus, I confess you as my savior. I confess you as my Lord. I make this choice today. Come into my heart. Forgive me of all of my sins and wash me clean and give me a fresh start today. I thank you, Father, for what you are doing in the hearts of people all in this room, what you are doing in the hearts of people that are watching online. And Father, I pray that today marks a day where we begin to extend our sight and extend our vision into transformation. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for being our God. I thank you for being our Savior. And I thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us and direct us. In Jesus' name, amen.